Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. Am I going to be the one who kind of lies onto the duvet for a week feeling like death and then, you know, carries on with my life? Am I going to be the one where um, I've got such an intense pneumonia that within seven or eight days, my, um, you know, oxygen saturation has fallen from 98, 99% to, you know, 80, 82% and I feel like I can't breathe and I'm turning blue and I'm, um, you know, ambulance to hospital where I either make it or I don't. Or am I going to be one of the ones who gets through and survives, but comes out with long COVID and, you know, wondering when am I going to feel normal again? You know, how could there be this incredibly diverse array of outcomes? And a lot of that is diversity of immune response. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Danny Altman from Imperial College about COVID-19 and the post-viral syndrome associated with its infection, currently referred to as long COVID. It's part of our long COVID series, and not a lot is known about this chronic condition, which for some people is absolutely debilitating, and it could also affect up to 500,000 people in the UK or more. And we really need to further research this condition and build the infrastructure to tackle it. Professor Altman heads a lab at the Hammersmith Hospital campus of Imperial. Key research interests are the immunology of infectious disease, including severe bacterial infections, Zika virus and chikunga virus, something that we refer to in the podcast where he can pronounce it better than me. Other projects focus on autoimmune disease, including the role of the microbiota in rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune immunotoxicity in cancer immunotherapy. Today, you're going to learn a lot. We refresh our memories about what we know about COVID. Danny gives us a quick recap about the parts of the immune system, how the virus enters cells via the ACE2 receptor, which is found on multiple sites of the body, hence why we have a plethora of different 
symptoms associated with COVID-19 infection. We talk about the inflammasome, what it is, why it's useful and what goes wrong with the virus. The over 50 symptoms documented to do with long COVID, including most popularly fatigue, headache, loss of attention and shortness of breath. We talk about the theoretical mechanisms on long COVID, multi-organ fibrosis, persistent undetected infection that needs to be cleared, as well as the similarity between autoimmune and inflammatory conditions as well. There isn't a clear correlation between the severity of acute disease if you are unlucky enough to contract COVID and the long-term issues associated with what we call currently long COVID syndrome. But the cyclical nature could point to an autoimmune-like picture. And we go, we go into uh, this in a bit more detail as well. We also look at parallels between other post-viral symptom, syndromes, such as EBV and post-Ebola. And we have a, a slight digress conversation about diagnostic uncertainty in medicine and how we actually approach that. And perhaps, you know, we really need to be thinking about the ways in which we see patients where investigations are all normal, the, there isn't anything to point to a clear diagnosis. Uh, and instead of thinking, well, this is a psychogenic, uh, uh, it's psychogenic in its foundation, we need to be thinking about the other possibilities and what we do not know and how we how we deal with that in medicine as well. And we round off our conversation talking about the vaccine variants to coronavirus and why Danny doesn't believe that it's going to be a cyclical vaccine schedule and it could behave slightly different. But Everything is up for discussion here, and I'm sure that many of us are going to be proven wrong during this period of time. I really hope this clarifies some understanding about long COVID, and we will be doing some other episodes on this really important topic as it pertains to how we treat other systemic inflammatory diseases as well. And there are certainly going to be some nutrition and lifestyle uh, changes that perhaps are going to be useful for this and other conditions although Danny wasn't able to offer any on this occasion and I understand his reservation for doing so because a lot of it is anecdotal at this point but we will see for now and watch this space but for now I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Professor Danny Orman. Danny, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Great. Um, I thought before we go into um, the main focus of our conversation, I would love to know what drew you to immunology and a bit about your, your career thus far. Oh, well, um, it's hard to say. So I've, I've been um, an immunologist for a frighteningly long time um, that would make me sound very, very old. Um because I've, you know, I've just loved it and um, lived and breathed it um, seven days a week. I mean, if it's possible, since um, since I turned up to start my my PhD, September 1980 at um, at Bristol University, you know, the sort of big chief was called um, Tony Epstein, who was the person or one of the people who discovered Epstein Barr virus, oh, wow. um, which was you know the first virus that we knew of that causes um, human cancers. And um, so I turned up on day one and um, they said, why don't you seem to like um, T cells and immunology? Why don't you spend three years doing something on that? And I've, I've never really stopped since. And, you know, and I absolutely love it and, you know, live it and breathe it. Well, wow. I mean, it was, must be quite amazing having had such a, an eminent um, immunologist, uh, someone to look up to. 
Well, you know, there were there were you know lots of, of great great people there that I could talk about for for for, for many many um, hours. You know, it was, it was just a, a very exciting place, and um, somehow um, different strokes for different folks, but sort of academia somehow appealed to me. The idea mm. that there was um, you know all this exciting knowledge out there and all this stuff being discovered. So around that time, um, it was one of the many times that the Nobel Prize in Medicine had been awarded to immunologists. So um, somebody called Rolf Sienkenagel won the Nobel Prize around then for discovering um, how T-cells recognize um, antigens. And it just felt like a very um, exciting world somehow. Well, I mean, it, it is a really exciting world. I mean, we, we've spoken on the podcast before about immunology um, and the system and, and, and how it pertains to things like cancer, but also obviously with what's going on right now. I wonder before we go into the main focus of our conversation, we could do almost a bit of a primer around immunology for the folks listening at home. So what do we mean by the immune system and how would we partition it into the, the various cell types? You know, we've all got some grasp of, of human biology and especially this year, I think we've all kind of come on in, in leaps and bounds. But I think one of the things that's um, perplexing to people is that if I spoke to you about your respiratory system, you'd kind of know I meant lungs. And if I said cardiac, you'd know I meant heart. And if I said central nervous system, you'd know I meant brain. But where does the immune system live? So that, that's the first kind of confounder because, um, you know, what are we talking about? We're talking about um, the things that white blood cells do to protect you against the outside world, which if you want to be... Um, a um, you know complex animal living on this planet is an enormous challenge and so obviously those white blood cells the clue is in the name are um, whizzing about in, in, in your blood but they're also doing things in quite a kind of complex choreographed way in particular bits of your body so there's your spleen and your thymus and your lymph nodes and your tonsils and, and all these kind of lymphoid organs where they actually have to kind of get together and talk to each other and make things happen so that's the first thing to know that it's um you know it's kind of buzzing around your body, but sometimes localizing particular places to do fancy things. And the other thing that gets us really excited is just you know the sheer complexity of it. That you know if I um, got you to look down a microscope at some blood and we separate out separated out the white blood cells, it possibly wouldn't look that exciting because um, they'd look like little tiny white round blobs of of you know slightly different shapes and sizes. And yet we could then do fancy things to them to um, identify them and, and light them up with different colored antibodies. And I'd be able to show you that those things that look like one type of white blob actually contained populations of tens of thousands of different cells protecting you in different ways with totally different genetic programs. And, mm. you know, we'd be off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and broadly speaking, if, we, if you look at the immune system, which you've, you've described then, just to give an idea of the, the, the magnitude of it to, to the listeners, what, what, what are the, the main parts of the immune system? Yeah. So, 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 you know, if you were to sort of rewind from my tens of thousands of, of different types and, you know, get, get, go, go back a little way, there's, there's lots of ways that immunologists like to kind of cut and slice this. But for me, one of the most useful starting points is to talk about some of the cells that look the simplest, the lymph lymphocytes, which are the little sort of white round ones. And um, they, especially for immunologists, come in two different flavors. Um, so since the 1970s, they've been called B cells and T cells. 
and the B cells are the ones that make your antibodies, and the T cells make lots of other kind of chemicals, lots of, lots of other cytokines, and also are sometimes known as killer cells, because if a virus, or for that matter, a cancer is, is, is in your cells, they'll recognize it and they'll kill it and, and stop, it, stop it spreading. We, we mainly get excited about B cells and T cells when we're not getting excited about all the other um, types of, 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 of white blood cells, because B cells and T cells are kind of, um, as we've seen in all the discussion over COVID, are kind of solving the problem in different ways, because a B cell can make this kind of soluble molecule, an antibody that whizzes around and soaks up bits of virus, um, hopefully before they can get into your cells and infect you or kill you. And the T cell is doing something slightly different. It's both recognizing the virus has got in and making lots of, of stuff to kind of boost the immune response and boost the B cells and get them activated. And it's also saying, um, help, I've spotted some viruses actually made it into some cells. It's actually penetrated the defenses. Let's kill those cells before it spreads. So it's both of those halves. And, you know, like I said, that's, um, that's been my life really for the last several decades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fantastically complex as well. I mean, I, I, I know you're pretty prolific on Twitter and I've uh, I've gone through some of the articles that you've retweeted and stuff. And I'll be honest, I get I get a couple of pages in and I, I'm, I'm having to... That's plenty, it's good. Different. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm having to look up a lot of the definitions. But I think that's great to sort of um, even pictorially represent in people's minds exactly how the immune system is and what the different types of cells are. And also, you know, we've heard a lot about the immune system and the gut. Um, and a lot of people have heard various proportions of the number of immune cells that are located in your gut. Can you talk a bit more towards towards that concept? It's a subject I, I love talking about. So in non-COVID times, a big part of the, the day job in our lab is people looking at the interaction between um, the, well, you know, let's put it this way, between um, diet, gut microbiota, education of immune cell populations, things made by those gut microbiota and by the immune cell populations and disease outcomes. And for me, disease outcomes in that sentence means for us anything from susceptibility to autoimmune and inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, or um, in another project in the lab, cancer patients being treated with antibodies to attack their cancers and how they, they come out of it very differently depending on differences in their gut microbiota. You know, we're, we're sort of passionate advocates of, of, of that field. So, so put simply, what it would say is that your microbiota is almost like another organ or another system in your body. It's part of who you are. It's almost um, a bigger part of your body than the human cells, the, 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 um, the um, sort of microbiological cells within you. And in the olden days, when I was a student, we used to think that they were kind of there by accident or not noticed or not relevant. And now we think they're an absolutely intrinsic part of who you are and why you're different. And mm. they're in constant dialogue with different parts of your body, but especially your immune system, kind of establishing a set point. Is it going to be pro-inflammatory? Is it going to be anti-inflammatory? Is it going to be good at immunity to cancers? Is it going to you know, let the cancers fly by? What's it going to do? Couldn't be a more exciting time than it is at the moment for um, decoding those interactions um, not least for the obvious reason that um, for so much of the medical research we do, the answer is something very complex and expensive and intractable and hard to deliver. 
Whereas when you do microbiota research, the answer might be to do with um, dietary change or changes mm. to use some antibiotics or quite, you know, quite tractable things. So, mm. um, so we love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did, can you speak to any, I'm not too sure if it's been looked into too, but if there are any differences in the response to COVID based on the um, microbial population of the patient at all, is that, has that been looked into? The beginnings of a few studies and lots of people setting up to look at it, you know, there's so many things to look at in COVID and we've been very impatient, haven't we? Because we've gone mm. a year from a standing start to knowing almost more about infection and immunity in this infection than about, you know, any others on planet Earth. You know, and why wouldn't you in, 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 in the current situation? So, yes, when there are so many immunologists who love sequencing and characterizing microbi microbiota species, that's ongoing as well. Um, and there've been a few reports and, and there will be more, you know, it wouldn't be very hard to, you know, to draw the diagram because, um, you know, as you know very well, people on planet Earth have very different species of microbiota in their bodies. Mm. And, um, you know, in very simplistic terms, there are goodies and baddies and ones that send your immune system in good protective directions and ones that don't. And that certainly will have implications amongst many other things in COVID. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, before we go into um, the, the chronic aspects of COVID, I, I wonder if we could probably, um, we, we could touch on the acute side of the infection with, with COVID-19. I, from how the virus infects a cell to its viral replication stage and then to the, the, the acute effects of COVID. If we all can think back to how we were thinking about COVID in um, February, February or March last year, it's been a steep learning curve for all of us, hasn't it? Because in February mm. or March last year, people were saying to me, oh, it's a bit like SARS and we dealt with that. Well, it's a bit like flu and we deal with that every year. And, you know, we know how to treat pneumonias. This is not a pneumonia. And maybe it doesn't spread very seriously from person to person. So we'll probably be okay. And this is all a bit alarmist. And, you know, if you move on from there, we've all, all had to learn an awful lot about it. You know, it really is a very, um, oh, kind of insidious, deceitful virus that does weird things when you least expect it. And every time we thought we had certainty about different aspects of it, we turned out to be wrong and had to rethink and regroup. Um, so, um, you know, it was far more transmissible than we thought. So we know that whenever it finds a cell in the human body that has this receptor on it, the ACE2 receptor, which is especially in your lungs, but also in your blood vessels and your kidneys and, you know, so in, you know all, all, all over the place in your body, it can get in and can do damage, which is why you see such a kind of diverse array of symptoms in, 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 in COVID. The bit that's been hard to narrate, um, it's taken a bit of time, is how the range of symptoms could be so diverse. And, you know, mm. if you catch it, you don't know which person you're going to be. You know, am I going to be one of the lucky ones who gets it more or less asymptomatically? Am I going to be the one who kind of lies onto the duvet for a week, feeling like death, and then, you know, carries on with my life? Am I going to be the one where um, I've got such an intense pneumonia that within seven or eight days, my um, you know, oxygen saturation has fallen from 98, 99% to, um, to, to you know, 80, 82%, and I feel like I can't breathe, and I'm turning blue, and I'm um, you know, ambulance to hospital where I either make it or I don't? Mm. Or am I going to be one of the ones who 
gets through and survives, but comes out with long COVID and, you know, wondering when am I going to feel normal again? You know, mm. how could there be this incredibly diverse array of outcomes? Um, and, you know, a lot of that is diversity of immune response. Um, yeah. So, you know, for example, when we look at those severe events in the lung, some of that is is lots of inflammatory cells getting into the lung and, you know, doing you damage. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it's quite incredible how we have this vast response. And is, is that um, is that in part because of the particular receptor site that this virus uh, enters the cell via? So the H2 receptor that you just mentioned there that's present in the blood and, and lungs and intestines. Is that the reason why we're seeing this multimodal, so, so this, this plethora of different symptoms? So one of the illuminating things quite early on, so when, when you know, if you go back to this time last year, when um, papers were coming out thick and fast, particularly out of Wuhan and then out of Italy, I was absolutely obsessively reading them, you know, every, every hour of every day, because everything in it was surprising. And if you look at those early papers from Wuhan, there were people who didn't, in ways that we would think of influenza and things like that, they didn't look explicitly at first glance ill yet. And yet when they did CT scans of their body, of their heart, of their lungs, there was immense damage going on. Um, you know, so this was a really um, nasty virus for getting into, you know, getting into cells, getting into places and, you know, doing damage. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, at, during the first wave when I was working in ITU and helping out some of my colleagues there, exactly as I generally work in a &E, the CTs that we were looking at were just horrific. And there was a clear... Before I think it permeated into public knowledge, there was there was definitely a, a, a clear recognition that this was um, a disease that that was related to clots and sticky blood. It was quite frightening because we saw PEs, we saw um, strokes, we saw a lot of that. So it was, there was definitely something like that going on. And 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 we're going to get to long COVID in a second, but uh, I, I wonder um, if we could talk to this whole process of. Uh, the inflammasome and the cytokine storm. What, what do those terms actually mean from an immunological perspective? Well, let, let, let's start with the the, the, the inflammasome. So you can think of the inflammasome as a kind of innate activation cassette of all of the, the early defenses that need to be turned on to protect you against invasion. And um, that's a big part of our, of our antiviral immunity. Mm. I feel like sort of um, COVID kind of does a double whammy on us, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, there's this kind of hyperactivation of the inflammasome so that lots of inflammatory things are going wrong. On the other hand, like uh, a lot of the viruses in its family, like the common cold viruses, the, you know, the human coronaviruses, it's actually very subversive. It's very good at subverting and turning off bits of the innate immune response, um, what are called you know, the type 1 interferons, that ought to stop it getting into cells. Um, so it's very sneaky. So you've both got mm. too little and too much immunity all at the same time. Um, and then leading into that, cytokine, just um, obviously it's just you know, the jargon for um, the, um, the sort of molecular mediators that come out of white blood cells. Um, you can think about them almost like, 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 like hormones that sort of travel mm. around the body and make stuff happen. So obviously there, if you've got too much of the very inflammatory ones coming out, and that's not good news. So, you know, so one of the ones we heard about very early on was interleukin-6, um, uh, thus leading into um, tocilizumab, um, one of the antibodies that blocks it has been sort of fairly successful. You know, this is a virus where um, 
you know, some of us are dogged some of the time by too little immunity and sometimes by too much of the wrong sort. Mm, mm. It, it's quite interesting because a lot of people were drawing parallels between this pandemic and the uh, Spanish influenza as well. Um, There were clear differences there, right? So the Spanish influenza, it seemed to impact those who had robust immune systems more. Am I right in saying that? Or If you go back and look at the ancient, um, you know, Lancet papers and things from the Spanish flu from from those days, Mm. they're um, to some extent sort of similarly terrifying in terms of, you know, those incredibly kind of ovaries, exuberant um, inflammatory responses they're showing in the lung that must have been um, like I said a slightly different but really horrific way to die and yeah. you know, there is some resonance there isn't there if you look at you know the kind you know the kind of CT scans that you were talking about yeah yeah, yeah absolutely Let's talk about long COVID. So it's a it's a term I think that's um, being used quite often uh, in in the media. Certainly over the last couple of months, I keep on hearing it popping up, and which is what's prompted me to do a podcast on this and actually discuss it in a bit more detail. What do we know about long COVID at the moment, and, and what does that term actually mean? Interesting situation, isn't it? That almost everything we know about long COVID has been patient-led. Um, so I feel like the medical mm. profession has contributed surprisingly little to this yeah, yeah. Um, textbook chapter so far, apart from, you know, some colleagues actually sort of dragging their feet, kicking and screaming against the very existence of the textbook chapter. Um, so, you know, all power to the um, long COVID groups, um, you know, all, all over the world, particularly in, in, um, in, in Italy and the UK, um, and then, you know, places like sort of body politic as, as, as well, across the across the US and they were the ones you know using 21st century social media platforms and coming out and saying we're all describing the same thing we're all mm. describing a phenomenon whereby we know we had covid even if we had covid at a time when you couldn't access a PCR test or you couldn't access an antibody test because we had the symptoms and life has never been the same afterwards and high on their list they describe fatigue, you know, the fact that these very often were young or middle-aged active people who were walking and running and cycling and doing a full-time job who who now feel, you know, that they're at sort of, you know, quarter or a tenth of their, their former speed. And they describe cognitive symptoms, um, brain fog and memory loss. And they describe um, wheezing and breathlessness and chest pain and joint pain and rashes and um you know this this so isn't in people's imagination because it's um you know convergent accounts from different countries around the world it's very validated across very you know very very large studies and surveys and publications now it's 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 a real thing to to define whether someone's got prolonged symptoms of uh covid i.e post viral infection you have to sort of decide what 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 is defined as full recovery from from covid um so how do we know that you're fully recovered i'll give you an example i mean i had covid at the start of the year most likely contracted from the hospital uh after 10 days i was fully recovered but actually i probably had prolonged symptoms for a week thereafter whether it's because i wasn't allowed to go out and exercise and i lost a bit of exercise tolerance or whether it was genuine 
prolonged symptoms of COVID post-infection. I'm not too sure, but I feel absolutely fine now and I don't have any residual effects, but I, I haven't come across a, a clear definition of full recovery from, from COVID that, thus far. Yeah, so, so I think the simple answer to your question is that we really, really need one. Um, and there's different, um, you know, there's some quite learned people who've, you know, written, um, you know, for example, pieces in the, in the BMJ and in, um, in, the, in the NICE guidelines to try and put down some markers for, you know, number of symptoms at three weeks or more. Mm. Um, but, you know, we we really need it, um, for, obviously for many reasons, because, um, you know, we can't count the cases and treat the cases and refer the cases unless we know what we're counting and what, what our kind of threshold is for, for being alarmed. And I think it's been a real issue and a real confounder, hasn't it? Because um, right at the beginning, uh, many of my colleagues were very um, skeptical and still are and dismissive and, mm. um, you know, want everybody to be as you were and say, well, you know, you're bound to feel a bit dodgy after you've had a viral infection, you know, you'll, you'll get over it. How, how dodgy is dodgy and how dodgy do you have to be for how long to think, well, actually, I'm not getting over this. And I don't know about you, but many of the people I meet and talk to with long COVID, you know, are very kind of, you know, robust, hardworking individuals who aren't just putting it on and really mm. feel devastated that they, um, you know, six, nine and 12 months out, they, 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 they still feel bad um, and, you know, completely underpowered and completely unwell and completely symptomatic. But I think it's very, um, it, it's almost antagonistic to some people to try and count long COVID because how do you have a single diagnosis that lumps in somebody who still can't exercise as well as they formerly could three or four or five weeks after acute attack mm. with somebody who nine months after their acute attack feels like they can't go out without taking a wheelchair with them. Yeah. It was very sobering for me. One of my interactions was with a researcher from um, Radio 4 and Radio 4 were doing a, a program on, on long COVID and we're very keen on the counting of it. And this chap got absolutely furious with me because I was um, quoting the um, Office for National Statistics data on at least 10% of all COVID sufferers having long COVID, which would put the UK, for example, at what, you know, half a million people yeah. with long COVID and would certainly have implications for NHS provision, expenditure, etc. He got absolutely furious with me and said, come off it. You're not telling me that 10 or 20% of the population are in wheelchairs. We'd have noticed that. Um, and I'm, I'm not because it's much more complex than that <laughs> yeah. because there's people coming into that disease space and there's people leaving that disease space and recovering. And there's some of the three weekers and some of the three monthers and some of the 12 monthers. And it's a very, you know, it takes very complex maths to model and count that. But it's mm. there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry you had that interaction live as as well. <laughs> it was on Radio Four, but yeah, yeah, I think I think to your point, you know, it's a spectrum. Uh, people will have prolonged conditions um, or symptoms which might be classed as you know, quote unquote, mild, versus those who literally can't get out of bed. And I think it's really important to distinguish that there is a spectrum. Uh, and I, I came across in my research for, for this podcast, there was this meta-analysis in January that you probably uh, come across yourself of the 50-odd symptoms that range from fatigue, headache, which I think are the most common ones, all the way to you know profound um, palpitations and, uh, and some psychological elements as well. But it's certainly more of the physiological symptoms that you can certainly measure. Um, 
I think it also, to your earlier point, it speaks to um, a grave issue within medicine itself um, of diagnostic uncertainty and how we deal with that as clinicians. Because, you know, I saw a whole bunch of people, I was working in A&E yesterday, and I would say probably a third of people who were well enough to go home, I don't have certainty on their diagnosis. And it's, it, it's, it's quite a difficult conversation to have with someone when you don't know 100% because you're trying to be the authoritarian doctor figure, right? Um, and so th- I think that's a bit of a cultural thing that needs to change w- within medicine itself too. Well, you know, I, I wish it would and I wish it could. I, I fear sometimes that we're kind of moving in the opposite direction, not in the direction you want to go. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all I can say, you know, in terms of, um, you know, long COVID, that, you know, we're all on the same team, aren't we? We all wish mm. that we had um, more diagnostic certainty. And the only way to get more diagnostic certainty is to get, um, you know, better biomarkers, better better tests, um, and you know, just just you know, better diagnostic criteria out there, which is doable, but it's only doable if we um, start to do the the, the correct investigations. And um, you know, again, you know, I mentioned before how um, kind of impatient we'd become over the last year for medical breakthroughs mm. and how fast we'd learned everything. So um, you know, why should we be surprised that a condition that we hadn't thought about till nine or ten months ago, we still don't really know what it's caused by, how to diagnose it, how to treat it. Um, in some ways, you could say, well, you know, why, why should we? And mm. yet, for those millions of people out there in the world, they're really impatient for this. Mm. Yeah. Do, do we have any um, idea of the potential mechanisms behind this um, post-viral syndrome with, with long COVID? Well, you know, th- there, are, there are hypotheses out there. And, you know, like other people, we're kind of champing at the bit to, to analyze them and try and get some answers. And I'm hoping that this week we'll have our final ethical approval through to start doing investigations with people in the, in the community, um, mm-hmm. not just with hospitalized cases. Because if I was trying to list my favorite hypotheses in, in no particular order, I'd say um, that this is a virus that likes getting into cells around the body that have ACE2 on them. And it's quite a damaging virus that causes you know, scarring, fibrosis, fibrosis, and leaves damage in those organs that you can see on a CT scan. So if you've got a damaged heart or liver or lungs or kidney, why you why shouldn't you feel ill? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in that one. For me, the only counter argument to that one is if, if it was simply that one, you'd say there should be a very strong correlation between how ill you were and how hospitalized you were for how long and how much long COVID you have afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I'm not convinced that's the case at all. Um, or you could say, well, maybe it's a bit like other um, viruses like um, Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus or something, which kind of um, completely, you know, disrupts and perturbs your immune system so that all your subsets go haywire and, you know, you just haven't got a normal immune system until it can reset a set point again some years later, you know, and that might be one or two or three years later, depending on, on how badly you do. Then um, I'm quite interested in the idea that a lot of people in the community have that maybe it is a reservoir of lingering virus that's doing you harm. Mm. We know that people have found lingering SARS-CoV-2 both in in gut biopsies and in in stool samples. So why couldn't it be that? And that would speak to all the people out there doing surveys at this very moment saying, you know, did I get better or worse after my COVID vaccination? 
Mm-hmm. And I think the I Got Better people are kind of quite far in the lead at the moment. So that would be interesting to me that maybe it just took a really amazing vaccine to, you know, to, to, to boost up those antibody levels and clear that reservoir. So, so that, that's really fascinating. And as a kind of, you know, immunologist who spent most of my life also worrying about autoimmune diseases, I'm quite interested in the idea of which there's lots of evidence that it's one of those viruses that can set up a full-blown autoimmune disease. In other words, antibodies, you know, against bits of your, of your body, mm. a bit like, um, you know, chikungunya virus does or Ebola virus does, that you actually start out with a full-blown um, autoimmune attack. So mm. all of those hypotheses, I think, are up for investigation. And we and other people are sort of dying to sort that out over the next you know, three months, four months. It's interesting to see if with the, whether there would be any parallels between other post-viral symptoms, um, syndromes like you just mentioned there, like EBV and, and uh, Ebola as well. Do, do we have, is, is there, is there um, evidence to suggest that there is that issue around autoimmune conditions being set off by the virus itself, like viral arthralgias, like rheumatoid arthritis, that kind of stuff? One of the viral infections where we know the most about it is another one that um, that my lab is very keen on and, and works on in Brazil called um, chikungunya virus. So chikungunya is one of the ones where the um, the little mosquitoes there, they have the, the Aedes aegypti um, nip you. And, you know, you either, depending on the season and the year, you either get um, Zika or dengue or chikungunya or yellow fever virus. And if it's chikungunya, you'll get one of those kind of, you know, sort of fevers and rashes and things and um, sort of bad headaches. And if you're lucky, you might be better after seven or eight days. But if you're one of the 30 or 40%, you go on to get, you know, a full-blown disabling arthritis that could last three or four or five years, um, wow. that, you know, that, that looks just like any arthritis. And, you know, and that becomes far more devastating to the sufferers and the economy and the healthcare system than the viral infection itself. So, you know, you can see why I bring it up quite, quite, quite a lot in, the, in this context. And that's led us and other people to think about that kind of analysis in COVID. And there've been two or three preprints so far where people have screened people after COVID-19 infection for new repertoires of antibodies against their own tissues and found loads of them, just loads and loads of them. Wow. That that's quite scary <laughs> to, to scary know. and amazing and interesting but you know um you know it is what it is but um it's interesting for an immunologist because um obviously immunology has come on in leaps and bounds in the clinic in the last 10 20 years so when you see immunological problems at least you have some immunological solutions because there's there's so many goodies in the larder mm. of ways of, of of treating autoimmune diseases now in terms of all the sort of biologics out there if we could only nail down what the problems are, I feel like we'd have, you know, good stuff to offer. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned it earlier, but using perhaps conservative estimates, how many people do you think um, this post-viral issue could could affect um, using the data that we have available to us at the moment? Well, that, that's that's the question. I'm, I'm scared to answer because people at BBC Radio Four shout at me when I say anything. So, so, so um, I'll say it with lots of sort of caveats and trepidation. I think conservatively, at the moment, there probably are half a million people in the UK with long COVID at some mm. kind of level, and I say that you know with lots of caution because I don't know how many of those 
are the ones who described themselves in the past tense as having long COVID and three or four mm. months in are now, you know, bicycling on their bikes again and, and you know, looking after their kids and doing their stuff and, and how many aren't. But yeah. I, I do think it's it's in that ballpark. And, you know, that ballpark clearly to anybody should be scary mm. because it's, that's a lot of misery and a lot of um, jobs and families and jeopardy and a lot of, um, you know, billions of pounds of NHS provision needed and a lot of extra doctors needed and a lot of extra clinics needed. So, you know, it's, it's kind of food for thought. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think this kind of brings me to the question, which I know is going to be very hard to answer, but theoretically, and, and perhaps even lending on your experience and knowledge around the gut microbiota, are there any things that people can do today to mitigate against any potential post-viral syndromes, whether it be diet, lifestyle related or, or otherwise? Yeah, I think, I think that's really hard for me to, to answer because I'd only be giving um, you know, second-hand information that's come out of the groups themselves who really mm -hmm. have done all of the running on this. So I know that um, there's a lot of anecdote out there and something's more favoured and something's less favoured. Mm -hmm. And there are people looking at diet and there are people looking at um, graded exercise and physiotherapy. Um, so, you know, I'm in no position to give any kind of critical judgment on any of those. So I haven't, I haven't sort of tried them or, or seen any of the data. But, mm. um, you know, with, without kind of poo-pooing anybody's anecdotes or research, I just think those are kind of um, slim pickings compared to just, you know, doing the peer-reviewed research, getting some mechanism, getting some answers and working yeah. from there. Because that's, yeah, that's the world they come from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and out of the other post-viral syndromes that we know of and have had experience with, what appears to work from from that perspective? Is it, like you say, clearing, well, it depends on the mechanism, but clearing the virus, let's say, with adequate vaccination or? Yes, you know, if you took those, um, those four hypotheses I talked about, well, okay, you know, if there's sort of fibrosis or scarring on your lungs or whatever, the answer is that, um, mm. you know, that, mm. that hopefully time time will heal it. But um, but if if we're if we're talking about um, you know virus hanging around its antivirals and vaccination, if we're talking about um, autoimmunity, um, you know depending on the sort of minutiae and the details of, of what mechanism of autoimmunity, um, if you look at you know treatments nowadays for people with um, you know rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis or irritable bowel, bowel disease or whatever, there are so many different goodies out there that are you know that are doing them quite a lot of good. That, you know that there there will be and, and would be answers so we've just got to kind of work it out and tease it apart yeah yeah, yeah absolutely and um uh, to, to do with the vaccine and, and the variants so w we have a vaccine at the moment it's an, an incredible you know feat of science and, and collaboration across the world how are we keeping up with um variants that are to be expected to occur over the next uh, year or so i think people are sort of um and i think this this feeds into vaccine hesitancy a lot from from what i hear on the front line from patients that i deal with as well how, how do we how do we keep up with variants as as we progress through this um pandemic yeah. Um, well, let, let me do you kind of two or three minutes of sort of my um, yeah. <laughs> my current sort of state of play in my head about 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 the variants. So, so sort of point number one to me is that you know we do across the world have this amazing vaccine program that's panned out so much better than I ever dreamt of. As in, as much as I describe it as you know a sort of ghastly and horrific and audacious virus and things, it's actually been um, very tractable to some quite basic vaccinology. So anywhere in the world that they managed to find a way 
to express this spike antigen in a very stimulatory way, they've almost, without exception, come out with very potent vaccines that induce humongous levels of neutralizing antibodies and T cells that really do the trick in a glorious, glorious way. So, you know, so that's panned out so well. So, so you know, answer number one from me is that the vaccines are amazing and just grab any, anyone you're offered. And because they're so amazing, um, so um, in the jargon, sort of, you know, neutralizing antibody levels in the thousands and tens of thousands, you know, higher than we've ever seen before. What it means to me is that when people give you scary data about how much less potent they are against the variants, um, even South African or, or, or Brazilian, and say they're sixfold down or tenfold down. Sure, that's scary, but most people's vaccine responses are so huge um, and so protective that for many of us, you could probably drop a hundredfold and still be in the sort of safety zone. Yeah. So, um, so, so don't kind of like you know throw out the baby with the bathwater because you know it's never going to work because we've got variants out there for most of us most of the time you know we're, we're still in the lead against the virus mm. um so i think that on the other hand um what are the things that bother bother me one thing that bothers me is that in in lots in many parts of the world including you know european mainland not too far away we've got quite a lot of vaccine hesitancy quite slow vaccine rollout and mm. quite a lot of percolation of um some of those quite scary mutant strains. Um, so I worry that we need more vaccination faster. And I worry that I see some politicians trying to sort of nag us to book our holidays and go there, mm. um, which, which I think at the moment would be a really daft thing to do yeah. Um, yeah. and really ask, asking for trouble. Um, and so all that leaves is, um, you know, what does the future hold? I think the future holds a few things. Sure, obviously there's work in progress to tweak and modernize you know, second generation vaccines that can deal with the variants. And that's, you know, so doable and so easy and so going to work. And I know that some people got kind of conflated this with seasonal influenza vaccines and the idea that we might be revaccinating people every year in perpetuity. Um, I, I probably don't see it like that because influenza is a much, much, much more variable family of viruses with far more ways of changing than this one has. And I think that the fact that we're seeing convergence of different mutations popping up sort of similarly around the world shows me that those are the kind of, those are the tricks that this virus has it has up its sleeve to evade immunity. And there aren't an infinite number of them to come. Mm. Yeah, famous last words, I may be proved wrong. I, I, you know, I don't think we'll be having this conversation in 20 years time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, a couple of words that I wanted to, to pick up on, ne neutralizing antibodies in particular. So that was something that was demonstrated in the vaccine uh, trials. Can you distinguish between neutralizing antibodies and antibodies that I think are being conflated in the press, um, especially when people believe themselves to have the, the right antibodies after having the code infection? And that might lead into people thinking that they don't need the vaccine. When I talk about the B cells making the antibodies, and people will have heard a lot about um, antibody screening and public health England antibody testing, and do the antibodies wane with time, and how many people in the population have antibodies, that's a very simple measure of antibodies, which is all the antibodies in a person's blood at any given time, where if you took a plastic plate and 
um, stuck some COVID spike antigen to that plate would bind to that plate. And that's a sort of, you know, quite useful, um, really rough and ready measure of does this person have antibodies at the moment in their blood, okay? And it's a kind of very, very distant cousin of the much fancier measure that I'm talking about, which is the small subset of all of those antibodies that really do the business. So, the, so when I say really do the business, it's a subset of them that are so targeted to the business end of the virus, what's called the, um, the RBD, the receptor binding domain, and it's that RBD that binds to ACE2 on your cells and gets into your cells and infects you. So if you're a person that's got loads of antibodies on board that are going to hang on to that RBD and stop it getting into your cells, you can't get infected. And so, so the, the assays to test for that are really quite fancy and quite demanding and not that many people in the world do them well. We've been very lucky to collaborate with people who do them absolutely brilliantly. And if you measure those, that's what I was talking about. You get very excited. Or I get very excited because there are many people out there who've had the vaccine, who've got enormous levels of these neutralizing antibodies, and you could never, ever manage, imagine them being susceptible to infection. But the levels that we're seeing in vaccinated people are, you know, 10, 100, 1,000 times greater than the levels we're seeing in people who just got infected and never got a vaccine. So if there's anybody out there who still believes in the kind of old version of the herd immunity argument, mm. like I had COVID, so I don't need the vaccine, no, don't, don't go there because it's not, it's not the same level of immunity at all. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad that we clarified that because, you know, if one of the mechanisms behind long COVID is in fact a lingering infection, then that's another reason why a vaccine which elicits such a significant response in neutralizing antibodies would be useful against uh, uh, reducing that risk. Yeah, I think I think there'll be a lot of work published on that in coming weeks and months, including especially from the long COVID groups that I think will be quite persuasive. Yeah, absolutely. Danny, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it and I hope it's- I enjoyed it, great pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. You can find all of this information and more, plus the links to some of Danny Altman's research on thedoctorskitchen.com. Sign up for the newsletter and you will get weekly recipes and inspiration for how to live a healthier, happier life. See you next time.